Let's pray. Father God, please lead us to the cross this morning and to see our own weakness and your beautiful heart there. In Jesus' name, amen. In uh, 1961, the Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt attended the trial of Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi bureaucrat who was responsible for what is known as the Final Solution, the systematic extermination of six million Jews in gas chambers during the Second World War. Eichmann had been hiding in Argentina for several years but was finally found, was kidnapped and stood trial for crimes against the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Arendt reported on the trial for the New Yorker. It was, as she put it, a study in the nature of evil, a long course in human wickedness. Yet what she discovered was disconcerting and has been found distressing by many ever since. She found that Eichmann, rather than being a perverted sadist, as others had suggested, was in fact disturbingly ordinary. He was motivated by appallingly familiar things, like the desire to do well in his career, to impress his superiors and to be liked by his friends. The trouble with Eichmann, she wrote, was precisely that so many were like him and that the many were neither perverted nor sadistic, that they were and still are terribly and terrifyingly normal. What Eichmann revealed, Arendt concluded her account, was the fearsome word and thought defying banality of evil. I've been thinking about this during the last week because as I've read it and thought about it, a very similar thing has stood out for me in Matthew's account of the crucifixion, which we've just heard. It seems to me that one of the things this account draws our attention to is the depressing ordinariness of the evil that leads to Jesus' death, the pathetic pettiness of the things that lead to him being hung on the cross. Let me show you what I mean. The conspiracy to get rid of Jesus is a tale of cowardice, greed, power plays and pathetic buck passing. A group of power brokers comes to a decision in advance and then seeks a trial to rubber stamp it, the opportunity having been provided by a man who was simply greedy. Judas realises what he has done, of course. I have betrayed innocent blood, he says in chapter 27, verse 4. But by then it's too late, and his request to return the money is met by a classic evasion of responsibility. That's your problem, mate, not ours. Yet, Judas makes it their problem by killing himself. And this leaves the power brokers in a moral dilemma. Not, of course, because they've paid off somebody in order to get an innocent man executed, but because there are rules about what to do with money used in crimes. I mean, you've got to have principles. And then we come to Pontius Pilate, a case study 
in a man trying to spin his way out of a moral decision of painful obviousness. It's quite clear that Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. His character made that abundantly clear, as did the way the chief priests accused him. And if this wasn't enough, his wife had a dream and warned him he was innocent. What crime has he committed? He asks in the end, in verse 23. Pilate, in fact, perceived that what was really going on was simply that the chief priests and elders were threatened by Jesus. Verse 18, he knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. Envy. Something that grand. Pilate's solution is to find a way to wriggle out of the responsibility. He gets the crowd to choose a prisoner to be released. Hey, he gave them a chance to do the right thing, didn't he? But the crowd choose Barabbas, a murderer, and so Pilate is left with Jesus again. And in the end, because he sees that things are getting hairy and he can't afford for the situation to get out of hand, he rolls over for the angry mob and gives the order to crucify Jesus. But he does everything he can to pass the buck. I am innocent of this man's blood, he protests. It's your responsibility. The crowd, of course, display all the usual sad features of herd mentality. They do what they're told, they're manipulated behind the scenes. And with obscene self-absurance, they gallop into an utterly disgusting position. Let his blood be on us and on our children, they cry out. With the trial thus concluded, the scene descends into predictable cruelty and mockery, with one group after another taking the chance to exult in another another person's misfortune. The soldiers, of course, are just doing what they're told, plus a little bit. Everyone takes a turn to spit and beat and insult as, as with the practiced ease of experts They weave together patronising ridicule and brutality. As they head out towards the crucifixion site, they make the most of things. They take the opportunity to insult someone else who is simply in the wrong place at the wrong time, Simon of Cyrene. And when it comes to the crucifixion, they make sure they get what they can. They divided up his clothes by casting lots, Matthew tells us. This, of course, is also why stripping him was a good idea. It meant there wasn't as much blood on the clothes when they beat him. I mean, may as well save on the washing if you can. Further opportunities to humiliate Jesus are, of course, taken. Pretend refreshment turns out to be another cruel joke. And the insults from bystanders are the kind of spiteful vitriol that only people who've thought about it a little bit are capable of. They twist his words and laugh at just the things Jesus held dear. His trust in God, his self-understanding, his mission. And finally, Jesus dies amidst pathetic, depressing nastiness. Blind to their own humiliation, those who are being crucified with him, they also insult him. And even Jesus' last words are misheard. Eli, my God, is heard as Eliyah, Elijah. 
And this is another chance for ridicule. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Ha, ha, ha. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. We might have assumed that this great evil act must have required some kind of extreme wickedness, some uniquely powerful or focused expression of evil, someone or something worthy of this monstrous deed. I think this is the way we tend to think, that real evil is caused only by people who are somehow different Wicked people who are in a whole different category from us, we who are just not perfect. Our culture is fascinated by this kind of idea. We are addicted to crime shows about disturbingly calm and cruel murderers, villains who are deeply evil in a way we can't understand. And this is because it is perversely reassuring to believe that evil is something profound and sinister, something mysterious and fascinating, if scary. But that's not how it was here. Jesus wasn't put to death by anything more than the same sad self-centeredness, envy and fear that we know about. The same cowardice and evasion we so easily excuse in ourselves. The same ridicule and cruelty and hypocrisy we encounter in our own world. Jesus was crucified not by arch villains and psychopathic serial killers, but by people no worse than you or me. People at the centre of their own little worlds who wanted to protect their reputations and influence and were willing to cut some corners to do it. In the death of Jesus, we see the utterly depressing ordinariness, the pathetic shamefulness of human evil. But this only brings into sharper relief the shocking, terrifying beauty of what Jesus shows us here about God. In contrast to all those around him and in the face of all the humiliation, Jesus possesses an incredible dignity in his sufferings. Standing before Pilate, he will not practice the same evasion, but speaks plainly and speaks the truth. Yet he refuses to play games with his opponents and so stands silent in the face of their accusations. And as he approaches crucifixion, there is an eerie irony to the taunts hurled at him, the crown of thorns, the title, King of the Jews, the repeated mention of his claim to be the Son of God. All of these moments seem to say more than they were intended to, and to humiliate not the one they're directed at, but those who direct them. Jesus' profound dignity here comes from the fact that he is driven by a conviction 
that this is fundamentally something in which God is at work. Whatever pathetic human cruelty and ignorance might be involved, this is ultimately a matter between him and his father, a matter he had battled out with sweat and tears and prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is why his last cries are not directed to those around him, either in anger or for mercy, but are to God in a dreadful combination of horror and trust. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which in Aramaic means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His last words are words of scripture, the first line of Psalm 22. And far from being anything like an expression of doubt at the last minute, They represent the most profound expression of faith possible. They give voice to both a conviction that to be abandoned by God is a horror worse than anything, as well as a refusal to turn anywhere else to find help. If his father has forsaken him, nothing else matters. And yet precisely in the asking of this question, why, lies faith that there is an answer, hope of a vindication, trust in God. Jesus will not give up on God, even in this last moment of experiencing God's abandonment. Jesus understood, you see, that this this wrenching apart this horrific experience of forsakenness was itself an act of God. He knew himself to be not merely an innocent man unjustly executed, but the one and only Son of God, and that it was, it was his Father's will that he should suffer in order to save his creation. The bizarre darkness that came over the land that day testified to the truth of this, as did the incredible events that took place immediately when he died, which you may have read. This was the way in which God would bring salvation through the father's giving up of his son to death. That this truly was who Jesus was, the Son of God, is made clear, so clear, that the centurion keeping watch couldn't help proclaiming it in verse 54. Surely he was the Son of God, he confesses. In this moment, Jesus, the faithful, magnificent Son of God, stood in the place of those who have rejected God, and accepted its terrible consequences. He allowed the irreparable brokenness of our relationship with God to come into his own perfect relationship with his Father. He let his own heart be torn apart by the pathetic shamefulness of our wickedness. 
And he did it. Because it was the Father's will that we should be free. Amidst the the muck of petty cruelty and cowardice and envy of his trial and execution, Jesus shines with the glory of God. In this moment of profoundest darkness, we are shown the extraordinarily beautiful heart of God. Jesus, the Son's devotion to his Father to the very end, to the depths of hell. And God the Father's shocking love for what he has made. His determination not to abandon us to our self-enclosed, self-destroying pettiness and cruelty, even though it meant the death of his beloved son. The banality of evil brings into sharp relief the terrifyingly beautiful love of God. Friends, we cannot leave Golgotha unaffected by what we have seen. Good Friday must change the way we see ourselves and it must change the way we see God. It must change the way we see ourselves because it, restro- it destroys the ridiculous mystique surrounding evil. As I suggested before, I think we often feel a kind of fascination about evil, a curiosity mixed with a kind of illicit admiration. But Good Friday shows us that evil is something that is neither impressive, even in a kind of shadowy way, nor distant from us. It is, in fact, all too familiar and thoroughly pathetic. Great evil is made of the same stuff as small failures. Pride, envy, cowardice, cruelty, self-centeredness. And Good Friday shocks us because it brings us face to face with the fact that we too are part of the problem. For there is nothing in this account that we are not capable of. There is nothing here that we would never under any circumstances do. It is the same sad stuff as our ordinary moral failures. And yet this is what that can do. This is what they can add up to. The unjust murder of the only perfect human being who ever lived. And so the the appropriate way to feel when faced with the crime of Good Friday is not fascination, but shame. Shame because of its utter shabbiness. Because it is nothing more than boring, sad human nastiness and yet infinitely evil. And shame because it is so much closer to us than we like to believe. Because we can recognise the way it happened like we recognise a familiar face. Because we are not really any different from those who did it. Good Friday must make us ashamed of ourselves and of our involvement in the ugly squalor of human evil.
But Good Friday must also change the way we think about God. Because when we stand at Golgotha, we can no longer believe that God is anything but good and unbelievably generous to us. We are often tempted and even today encouraged to feel bitter towards God or angry with him, frustrated that he is so narrow and demanding, so limited and intolerant in his views. But we can't feel these things beside the cross. Not when we catch sight of the glory opened up to us there. Not when Jesus himself would not feel these things, even as he experienced utter forsakenness, as he suffered the punishment for our sins in our place. Not when we realise that this is the love of God to save us. When we see these things, how can we feel anything other than wonder, gratefulness, and love. God is not mean or unfair or careless. He is the one who loves us so much that he took into his own life the horror of our pathetic evil in order that we might be forgiven and live. So this Good Friday, let me invite you to feel both shame and wonder. Shame for our involvement in the shabby depravity of evil. Wonder at the Saviour who suffered in our place and at the God who loved us so much that he gave his son to save us at such great cost. And let that lead us to repentance and faith because these things will bring unspeakable hope on Easter morning. Amen.